Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Good evening, and welcome to Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me tonight, as always, is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello! So I was reflecting that I uh, got started saying good evening because Stephen Fry would always say good evening if you watch QI. Yes, good evening, good evening, good evening, good evening, good evening. He'd like do yeah. this whole, I can't say it the way he does, of course. But yes, yeah. but obviously uh, our listeners are welcome to listen at any time of day. doesn't have yes. to be evening. I like that though. Good evening, good evening, good evening, good evening. Good evening. So this is going to be, yes, good evening, good evening. So this is going to be um, our sec- second part of our episode on decolonization. Uh, should we go over what we talked about last time? We started off talking about yes. the Americas. I figure we'll do a tiny, just a tiny recap. Um, because, again, this is sort of part two, so we don't want people to think we forgot things. Right? So last time was the Americas. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And this time we're going to try to get to both Asia and Africa. Um, and, you know, of course this might spill over into yet another episode. But the goal, really, behind decolonization, we had a whole episode just on that, right? Um, And the point is to shift our mindsets, right? So this is what we've been sort of talking about, is how to shift our mindset. And the point of talking about the Americas, of course, um, this is important to our podcast as a whole because we define the Middle Ages. The general European timeline is 500 to 1500. But recent scholarship has essentially defined this as the millennium before modern globalization, right? So instead of basing it on European milestones, which would be to say kind of kind of the fall of Rome to the Renaissance, for example, that instead we base this on the idea that essentially the millennium before modern globalization is important because... Once we hit 1500, we have essentially the, what is, you know, the modern era, uh, or will become the modern era. So a period of continuity where um, the world will continue to sort of create global trade routes, ever sort of more global and ever more trade routes, right? Um, and so what's happening everywhere in the world for the millennium before that? What's going on? Who are the peoples and the cultures that eventually will meet via these trade routes. Who's already met? Where are there already trade routes in place, right? Um, and so that's really the idea behind it. And the it comes especially, the reason we start with the Americas, of course, is because of the extent to which uh, we get taught in school that American history begins in 1492, right? Um, which, of course, it doesn't. Sometimes you get an asterisk uh, that says, you know, except the Vikings also got here, Right. <laughs> Um, right and it's just Chinese the Chinese came to the west coast at some point right potentially yeah you know they have to find archaeological evidence for these things right Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah I mean obviously the Pacific Islands you know people traveled around and obviously people got to all the islands right so did people get to California Um, but this is sort of the point yes uh, is that define you know, it's problematic anyway, but certainly it's problematic to define history in any sense by the arrival of specific people <laughs> somewhere, right? Because if there are already people there, then obviously the history of that place has already started, mm-hmm. right? So the history of the Americas starts when people get here, 
presumably via the land bridge, right? And that's tens of thousands of years ago. So there's absolutely a medieval Americas, right? Um, and this is something like you can Google this, which I actually did about an hour ago. So, um, and one of the first things you find is that there was not a medieval Americas. Now, this is not, you know, there are articles on the medieval Americas all throughout. Google's very helpful. Um, but, you know, some of the random, like, question sites where people are like, was there Middle Ages in the Americas? And then someone would be like, no, because that's technically European. Now, that's fair. That is a fair answer. But in as much as we're sort of trying to redefine the Middle Ages, um, the idea isn't to try and impose this sort of European time period on other cultures. The point is to just look at this sort of millennium. So you can sort of call mm -hmm. it other things, but to essentially to recognize, um, because anytime someone says that there wasn't a Middle Ages in the Americas, the implication is that the cultures and civilizations of the Americas were not equal to or worth talking about in the same way European culture is at the same time. And that's the problem, right? Which is why we look at history sort of starting in 1492. Um, and so the idea is if we have to recognize, not just for the millennium before, but of course even before that, right? The ancient world, the ancient Americas, right? But to recognize the sort of many, many cultures and civilizations that existed in the Americas as being absolutely as incredible and complex and extraordinary as what was going on in Europe so that we think about these two things really as equal. And that way we have a very, very, very different mindset, hopefully, when we think about what happened when the Spanish and the Portuguese and the Dutch and the British and the French, right, um, all start to come over. What really happened? What was that really about? And we don't think of it as the beginning of the history of the Americas, we don't think of it as, um, yes, they did terrible things, but it was all for the best in the long run, right? We hopefully get mm -hmm. rid of all those ideas. And we're like, there was this amazing stuff in the Americas, amazing cultures and civilizations, right? Uh, we've sort of talked about them last time, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but the Mississippian culture, of course, um, throughout, uh, by the time the Spanish arrive, um, other cultures have sort of taken over, um, but like the Natchez are their descendants. Um, and then, of course, the Aztec, the Maya, right, the Inca, the Mochi. Uh, if we go further back before the Middle Ages, or through the ancient worlds, we get the Olmec. Um, so, right, all of these cultures and civilizations mm -hmm. in the Americas um, that are thriving and extraordinary and get crushed. Right. And that has to be something we think about. That being said, of course, they're still here and they're still important. Right. Yeah. So today, I think the Supreme, not the Supreme Court, a court has said um, that the pipeline, the Dakota pipeline has to be shut down. Oh, yeah. That was very recent, wasn't it? Yeah. Was it a court in Minnesota? Um, it was back in the news again today. Yes, I, I think. Was it? It must have been because it it it's yeah. been going through the court systems and some sort of very upper court. I do see headlines in the New York Times: Dakota Access Pipeline to shut down, pending review. Federal judge rules. There it looks yeah. like a big East Coast pipeline that was approved. They canceled it because the oil market has not been doing great. Somehow. Right. Um, nobody is driving, I guess. And so Yeah. And now the the Dakota Access pipeline is 
getting canceled, apparently, and... Yeah. It's supposed to be emptied while the review pens, basically. Nice. So maybe it was an appeals court. Anyway, we'll put this in the notes. We'll figure it out. But yeah. But that idea, right, that, you know, we pretend that all this is in the past, but it's not in the past. We still do it, right? Like building pipelines across native land. Yes. I mean, granted, this is all native land, but... I mean, just a few days ago, um, just a few days ago, you know, Trump held a rally at Mount Rushmore, which was a major sacred site. Oh, a major sacred site. Before, for some reason, we decided to carve a bunch of presidents (laughs) into it. Yes, well, the guy who did it um, had been to Egypt and stuff and wanted to do something like that. And he... Which is, like, cool. Monuments are... Like really big monuments are kind they of are interesting, but pick your pick your spot, dude. Pick it better. Yes. Well, also he did the one in the south. Um, that's the one in jo- like Atlanta. Yeah, where they're all riding along the yes the face. Um, and the KKK basically funded that one, and he was apparently a white supremacist. And then you know he f- had a falling out mm. with the people there, and the daughters of the confederacy or whoever was sort of in charge and he went off to do mount rushmore he'd already been tagged for mount rushmore but he sort of went off to do that but um yeah he was a white supremacist there was an article about this recently yeah. as well um so not only you know was it native land and all the rest of it but of course he was a white supremacist and of course you know you have a couple people up there who were slaveholders <laughs> um and then of course roosevelt was teddy uh was pro-environment but Definitely not pro-Native American, which sort of leaves you with Lincoln, <laughs> who probably didn't want his face carved on the side of a mountain, to be fair. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, but anyway, yeah, so there's a lot of issues right there. And yes, the giant rally that was held. Um, yeah. So many things to be said, but but yeah. But it's a reminder. It's a huge reminder of the ways in which they... Right, Native Americans continue to be erased. <laughs> um, and so this is why decolonizing is important, right? Decolonizing the syllabus, decolonizing sort of our histories um, to try and change our mindsets so we not only stop erasing people in the present, of course, as well as the past, but also begin to value them, mm-hmm. right? That's the other side of it. You can't just... It's not just enough to sort of then also talk about them, but to demonstrate that they're integral to society and important and valued yeah. right um yeah so we so last time was the americas so we did we didn't cover mount rushmore specifically because i don't think that really had happened yet. no it hadn't happened no. yet that happened over the fourth of july weekend right yeah we were taping like june 30th right <laughs> so um recording sorry there's no tape involved this is yes. the modern era ah yes <laughs> old timey i know tapings yes I mean, we still refer to them as these things. Someone, I was thinking the other day about the metaphor of, like, looking through a keyhole. And I was mm-hmm. like, how many, you know. When was the last time you saw a keyhole that you could do that? Right. <laughs> I think I think when I was born and my parents lived in, like, this old Victorian house, there were maybe a few doors inside right. that had keys. And they didn't work anymore. Right. But you could look through them. Right. And yes. that's Imagine, the last time I've seen one. Like, old, yeah. old houses. Right. You go to, like, historic mansions similarly, right? Yes, you see the inside has those, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, or you see them but in But it's movies, worse than that. Right? <laughs> it's worse than that. If you look in Word, you know, what's the icon for saving? 
Ooh, what is it? It's a it's a floppy disk. Oh my god, it is. You're right. When was the last time you saw one of those in person? <laughs> right, like oh maybe in two thousand six. Right. Well, probably when I clean out some box somewhere and I'll find <laughs> my know. like little yeah. thing. My computer them, right? doesn't even have a disk drive anymore. I don't know no. what I would do. No, I mean so. I have a like CD drive or whatever that I can hook up to my computer. Mm-hmm. DVD drive, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. But no, my computer does not have one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or like yes. if you look at your phone, I don't know about your phone, but like the handset, like if you want to make a call, the little icon for a phone is like of the old timey 1970s yes. rotary dial phone handset. <laughs> yes, you're right. It absolutely is. That's the receiver. Yeah, yeah. You pick I up mean, the I love these. I love these digital anachronisms. But it's brilliant, though. Well, yeah. or for mail, it's got the little letter, the envelope. Mm-hmm. Yep. I still do use envelopes. I just want to say that. Yeah. Um, Go know. postal service. Right. We we still have that. We know who they <laughs> are. Um. But yeah, it's it's hilarious. But then also, of course, um, yeah. I mean, that's why we're sort of glad we do have movies because. All these things have been recorded, you know. Yes. You know the technology. Yeah, yes, on real tape, <laughs> actual tape. But it does make certain things like, um, you know, a lot of modern movies reference the fact that historically film was um, created in such a way that it was extremely flammable, mm-hmm. right? Um, but you see those old machines. That, you know, also the film would break and you'd have to like re yeah. paste it together, which of course is where you get that idea of like clipping and pasting in the, right? And you'd have to mm-hmm. quick mend it and fix the film. And, um, you know, this is why projectionists basically had a union that was like, you can't fire them all just because everything's on a DVD now. <laughs> but of course, it doesn't take quite the same technique that this it used to take. Yeah. Yeah. But this is also why, you know, Scorsese and people um, put all the money into trying to save film because mm-hmm. those old canisters, they're just degrading. And there are some amazing things on them. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, since we're talking about decolonizing history, I just want to give a quick shout out because um, we're talking about film. So we might as well say this. Film history um, is, of course, a huge part of this because the technology for film, you know, is incredible and is used to re- record some extraordinary moments in history. But also, um, some of the earliest film directors, cinematographers, editors, um, created some really horrible things. So most famously, like D.W. Griffith, um, who created, right, he created a lot of aspects of modern cinema, but Mm -hmm. in films like, for example, Birth of a Nation that make the KKK heroes. Yeah. And there is a reckoning that sort of needs to happen there. Um, And there was something really interesting um there's a documentary i think on netflix that just came Mm -hmm. out called i'm gonna say disclosure okay and it's about sort of the history of trans um people on film essentially Mm -hmm. and uh susan Stryker must be um near near the beginning has this great discussion um just a sort of really interesting discussion um, of what might be one of the first um, she says the first which is quite possible um, if she says it then it's true I can't remember if she says the first or one of the first um, 
portrayals of a trans person on television or on film actually of course no television on mm-hmm. film um and trans or at least certainly gender queer um and it's in a dw griffith film and it's the um it's a clip where um he essentially invents uh the modern the cutaway mm-hmm. basically right the editing technique of the cut Right, which prior to this moment, uh, maybe hadn't been used at all, or certainly hadn't been used in this way. Right, where you're looking at a scene and then you cut to something else and you cut back. Right, mm-hmm. this has become, of course, it's a basic, basic, basic language of film. Yeah. Right, um, and in this film, the cut is to this genderqueer person, mm-hmm. and so. The idea that this really, really, really important moment in film history and sort of the language of modern film is created um, around the body of maybe, right, a sort of trans um, person and what that means, that sort of this idea of the cut Hmm. has been paired with the sort of queer body. and so the way that sort of problematizes the moment tremendously, right? Um, but this is true of sort of a lot of what Griffith did. I mean, most of his innovations are tremendously problematic and in service of messages that are tremendously problematic. Um, but we pay, of course, more attention generally to the racism. Mm-hmm. Um, but things like this, right? That these are sort of things we need to know yeah basically i think that this is sort of another version of um a question i've been asking myself you know partially i talked about philosophy what do you do with heidegger right because he was a nazi and (laughs) we talked about we talked about different um you know there's a there's a nazi based i guess i shouldn't call it a nazi based but the guy who created the book it's an anatomy atlas um that's considered to be like have very beautiful well done illustrations but the guy who created it was a nazi and many of the people whose bodies he was using um to illustrate the anatomy was were probably killed like prisoners of war or prisoners from you know concentration camps so Mm -hmm. like what do you do with these things right like dw griffiths obviously was a terrible racist and at the same time like so much of our modern film vocabulary and ideas come from his work and it's it's yeah. difficult um when we talk about like the the idea of white supremacy isn't just the clan going out and burning crosses it's like the the playing field right. that white people have created that that we all are sort of living in and it's hard for us to see yes so, yeah, so it it does become, like, a really interesting question, and I'm not enough of a film scholar to be, you know, I wish I could come back and be like, oh, yes, there's this great, you know, Mongolian director who really problematizes Griffith's work in this particular film, you know, but right. I cannot right. do that. But I just right. think, I just think that, like, on the one yeah. hand, you have a lot of people from the past who are checkered, right? And we have to look at right. them and take the good with the bad, and a lot of that is happening in his discussion of Hamilton that he w- he did good stuff he did not great stuff right. how do we deal with that but at the same time yeah. there's definitely people who 
maybe tip the scales more to right. not good, <laughs> but at the right. same time, their contributions are like really evident in Integral. society. Yeah. 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 Well, and that's the thing, right? Um, also, by the way, the movie is Judith of Bethulia, 1914. Okay. Yeah, it's Judith and Hollow Fairness, by the way. Oh, um, interesting. So it's also this biblical story, and the the sort of genderqueer person is um, presumably, I mean, this is part of this sort of um, Middle Eastern slash maybe Persian exotic, mm-hmm. right? So there's also this Orientalism, right? We've talked about Orientalism. Um, there's also that sort of element of it. Right. So there are all these layers on top of this moment. Um, But right, of course, we're not going to stop using his vocabulary. I think just the point is that we need people do need to be taught that that's where it comes from. Yeah. Right. Um, And you mentioned Hamilton. Right. Of course, (laughs) Hamilton, the musical, that there are these other interesting things. Right. That in some ways, um, you know, people have critiqued Lin-Manuel Miranda's musical, but Mm -hmm. that his sense of. You know, we always tell the same story. This is a story you think you know. What if you saw it with bodies that weren't white? Yeah. Right? That already, if you look at Davy Diggs playing Jefferson, hopefully your mind goes to the fact that Jefferson was a slaveholder, mm-hmm. um, had children with Sally Hemings, right? And other um, slaves. Was, yes, and other slaves, right? Yes. Um, and so the sort of horror behind that and that Hemings, of course, in addition, was, I believe, the half-sister of his wife. Yes. Related to his wife, who, yes. of course, had died. Right. So the layers of, like, the horror, basically. <laughs> um, but that you do see that, right? When you see yeah. Davy Diggs in that role, you do see that history and that legacy. Mm-hmm. Now, they don't talk about it explicitly in the play, but you are reminded simply because you see it. Now, that might not be true for everybody, but I do think that is an argument sort of mm-hmm. to be said, right? I'll say, like, um, one other yeah. thing that Hamilton really made me think about um, mm-hmm. was that in emphasizing the role of immigrants in building the country, like, the in the revolution yes. stuff, it made me remember that, like, basically we are all immigrants, Yep, and that if you're not Native American, you're an immigrant. Yeah, that there were people here before, (laughs) and like we all just arrived. And like I had some relatives who were maybe here during the revolution, and then other relatives who came, you know, at the beginning of the 20th century, sort of to escape the czar. Yeah, relatives. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And my favorite story, if I can just share quick, is our great, great grandfather. Yes. Yes. Our grandmother's father. Um, Harry, Harry Panama. Went, yes, went to see off, went with his mother to see off, right, a young woman who was a friend of his, at, sort of at the boat, and just decided to leave. Yeah, he just got, and on, got the on the boat. <laughs> yes. And you're just like, what? And he got, he got the woman's address, so he knew where she was going to be, mm-hmm. and he disappeared off to North Dakota, of all places, and a couple years later, he wrote her and married her and, you know. Yeah. But, you know, he'd established himself. Um, Yeah. But the idea, (laughs) right? You could um, just leave, you know, Lithuania. It was part of Russia at the time, but it was like Marianne Poole. And just get on a boat and go, like with no preparation or anything. Yeah. And that used to be, right, immigration laws such as they are have only existed basically since the 20s. Mm -hmm. You know, they're invented originally, passed, invented, uh, to try and stop Chinese immigrants. 
right? And then, of course, progressively different types of immigrants. Yeah. Um, we actually have a we have a student, a grad student, who has since graduated and gone off to do great things. She's teaching and stuff. Um, but she wrote her own musical as her MFA project. Wow. And it was about her... Um, it was a sort of story based around the story of her ancestors. I'm going to say grandish or great grandish grandparents immigrating. They some of them did come in the 20s after some of these laws have been passed, and they were coming from Sweden, which of course we assume is white. I mean, they are, they were, yes. but at the same time, that didn't really help. <laughs> um, if you came third class, right? Because then it's all about class. Mm-hmm. So if you if you came first class, you got in. But if you came third class, you had to get in. There was a quota. There were quotas. Yeah. Right. And so ships would wait in the harbor until like the first of the month to try and get their people in. Right. And you could even show up like on the fourth and the quota could have already been filled. Right. Um, And people say, you know, my whatever came here legally. Well, first off, there were no laws until 100 years ago. Yeah. (laughs) Basically. Right. Anyone could come. And... Laws only really started because people of color were coming because they wanted to come mm-hmm. and not because they were being brought forcibly as property. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so, yeah, this is why we need to decolonize our history, because our history is, you know, something that people really do need to know. Yeah. It's messed up. Yeah. It's very messed up. Yeah. On that note, let's talk about Africa. Yes. Because. So. <laughs> okay. Yay. So, yeah. okay. Medieval Africa. Yeah. Medieval Africa. So, I just want to start by telling a story, um, which is like, I don't want to sound like, I grew up super naive. I don't know. I grew up in like Janesville, and in as much as there were like Wisconsin. two. Yeah, Wisconsin. Two Jewish <laughs> families. There's like maybe one or two African American kids in my class. Um, like a like maybe one Lao refugee, but um, so there wasn't a ton of diversity. And by Janesville standards, I was part of the diversity. Uh, So I I didn't think too much about racism until I was in college and took, like I had to take this class um, called the African Storyteller. I needed an ethnic studies credit. And the guy who taught it was this guy named Harold Schaub, who died last October at the age of 88 he basically taught the class for like 43 years like they had to pry it out of his withered hands yes he was a legend yeah yeah and he had all these great stories about like he'd been doing research in South Africa and he got off the plane and his friends were like hey your book has been banned because this is still under apartheid (laughs) right Um, and he he did like he did not pull his punches he showed us like videos of the police busting protesters during apartheid and like the terrible, terrible things that they did. But basically, um, in amongst this, he was like, this is still happening in the U.S. But also um, the, the thing that he said that really stuck with me for whatever reason is look at all these movies that are coming about, out about Africa. And at the time, there's like three or four Blood Diamond might have been coming out. There was something Angelina Jolie was sure. in about being a translator. And it might have been when she filmed yes. it in like Namibia or something. 
Yeah, vague memories. Yeah. Right, when she started adapting children, maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and it was like, all of these movies are about white people and Africa is the background. Yeah. And so you get you get movies about Africa that are like the Lion King, right? Yes. Where all you see <laughs> yeah. about Africa is like planes, majestic migrating gazelles and, right. you know, the giraffes. Animals. Yeah, animals. Right. And then you get white people and... You know, there might be, like, Africans in the background. Right. And he was like, this is what I mean. And that has always, like, always stuck with me. And you see it, you see this sort of thing everywhere. And, like, there's so many places in Africa. I remember, you know, there's, like, a shooting in a shopping mall, I think, in, I want to say in Kenya. And... A lot of people, I felt like, were kind of like, wow, they have shopping malls there? Yes. And you're like, dude. Right. You know, they're, they're a major functioning economy. and Okay. Cities. And, yeah, yeah, cities and escalators and people going to coffee houses and doing normal things, yep. right? Universities. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. So that's my little rant for the moment. Yes. Um, yeah. I want to say quick, when I said yay before, of course, I meant that he made it to 88. Yes. Not, he, of course, he was. Away, but yeah. yeah, he was amazing. Yeah, um, he's. A, I I hated him like the way that that he would not grade my essays as being as amazing right. as they clearly were, and like right. probably <laughs> called out all of my undergraduate bullshit, and like definitely yes. made me a better thinker. And it was one of it was a painful process. Yeah. Like, let's yes. be honest, your senior coming into a class that's mostly freshmen, you're like, whatever, right. Right. Uh, but it's been one of the classes that stuck with me more. Awesome. And see, and he, that's why he did it, right? Yeah. He yeah. would be proud. I um, hope so. I hope he would at yes. least be like, well, this is adequate. Like, yes, exactly. <laughs> literally the least that I can do is yes. to be like, wow, it's kind of racist that all these publishing companies, if they want you to know a book is set in Africa, they make the cover this one color yellow. Yeah. It's yes. like... And then they put a mask on it, maybe, or something. Mm-hmm. Or a yeah. wood carving, yeah. No. Um, yes. Yeah, I heard some of his lectures. I never officially took the class, but I heard some of his lectures and went to his talks and stuff, yeah. Um, and yeah, he was phenomenal. Um, but this is sort of the, yeah, this is the exact idea. When you said that, also it made me think um, in Eclipsed by Dan Aguerrera, who most people probably know from The Walking Dead or possibly from Black Panther, um, but she is also a playwright who makes her living as an actor, which is rare <laughs> that doesn't doesn't happen a lot shakespeare did it but like it's not super common yeah um that people manage to do that um but anyway she wrote eclipsed which was on broadway a few years ago and nominated for all sorts of tonys right lapina nyongo was in it um and i think it had had been in it in yale actually when sort of denigar first wrote it and so and then they managed to bring it to broadway but it's about civil war liberia and um there, it's an all-female play, which is fantastic. There are these women. Um, but wh- one of them <laughs> recaps the story of coming to America for some of the others. And there is a discussion, a general discussion about the ending. And because Eddie Murphy's character, who's African, right, comes to America and meets an African-American woman and ends up marrying her, right? Mm-hmm. And this discussion amongst the women in the play about whether that's good or why couldn't he have found a wife in Africa, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, 
it is a giant continent, of course, right? Yeah. Um, and so, like, why does he have to go to America to, you know? And of course, it's the comedy is supposed to be a comedy about sort of reversing things, right? That usually it would be like the person goes to Africa and falls in love with this woman and brings her back to the States. Like, oh my gosh, you know. So there, there is that com- sort of comedy in the, about the reversal and it does discuss issues. Um, but nonetheless, right, this sort of point about like, why does America have to be part of this story? Well, of course, in this case, because that's where the comedy was made, right? <laughs> it's yeah. American comedians, right? But that is a sort of interesting question, right? Um, the extent to which Africa um, somehow is always this backdrop. Um, and actually, I do sort of want to mention Black Panther, having yes. mentioned. Lupita <laughs> Nyong'o, of course, also in Black Panther. Yay, they were all in it together. Okay. Yeah. Um, or the two of them. But um, that that is sort of this interesting question where um, the fictional country right of wakanda (laughs) um the question becomes like what is its responsibility to africa as a whole right and as a parallel the real question of course is what is the responsibility of the u.s but really also african americans what Mm -hmm. is the responsibility to africa right to the parts of africa that are not as well off um what is sort of the responsibility in the U.S., but also, more specifically, the U.S., what is the responsibility of the U.S. to its own citizens, mm-hmm. right? That the sort of conversation about Wakanda and the rest of Africa, an extent to which the U.S. has responsibility, right, and all the colonial countries that, you know, right, completely destroyed Africa, like, what, to what extent are they responsible for helping? But that that question parallels the much deeper question of, right, the U.S.'s responsibility for its own citizens, right? Mm-hmm. The question isn't really one country, one fictional country and sort of the rest of the continent. The question is within our country, there are sort of all these little different countries. Yeah. Right? And what are the responsibilities that they owe each other? Um, and that, of course, the conversation, the protests, that's what the protests are about right now, right? Yeah. Um, that something has to change. Um, and that the country has to feel responsible for all its citizens, right? That there can't be citizens who don't matter. Um, and of course, in that, that does always mean, right? Whether it's the white man in Africa, you know, you have two possibilities. He's either the villain or he's the savior, right? right. The white savior narrative <laughs> or the white villain. But either way, that somehow he's the one the story's about. Yeah. Right? Um, and you can transfer that back to here, right? That tends to be what films about African Americans frequently also do, right? The mm-hmm. problem of the white savior trope. Yeah. Right? Where at the African American history might still be a background for the white story right there's Um, like a white teacher who's working really hard in your inner city school or whatever right to say like you know they're not usually i mean um maybe the south south side with me is a little bit different but like they do not generally make movies about like nice upper middle class black people who you know have comedic jobs right. in offices or something right it's more of a key well, and that's skit, sort of i guess like they're the ones yes, who do it television like, tv has yeah. done it but most films are like you know right. the 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 hard-working white teacher in the in the inner city and look yes. how look how scary everything is but she still turns up for work every day right and um before of course we knew what we know now about bill cosby 
<laughs> um, that was actually what yeah. made the Cosby show in some ways so revolutionary, right? Is that mm-hmm. it was a upper middle class family, same as any other sitcom, except that they were African American family. Yeah. Right? And blackish he today. A that's sort of what blackish does. Yeah. Absolutely. Right? And in blackish, um, Anthony Anderson is a an ad executive, which is about as, you know, yes. upper class, yes, that you can get. It's one of those nebulous jobs that seems to work mostly in sitcoms, yes. honestly. Uh, but also, of course, it it really allows them to tie in to the point that that just same way, you know, white people are huge consumers and complicit in brands and mm-hmm. selling that, of course, like everybody does this, right? So, um, yeah. And that, you know, so the idea, but that is sort of one of the revolutionary things about, right, these sitcoms. Um, and you're right, film, you know, it's not that there sort of aren't any, but the ones that get nominated for Oscars, right, famously mm-hmm. tend to exploit right. um, black pain and trauma, right? Um, that it, And that that is, of course, that is a huge problem. Um, and so, yeah, that's right. That's another part of this question. I say this, you know, with a lot of love, there's even recent movies like Hidden Figures is really about black women dealing with racism, right? Like, yes. And sexism. Right. But well, that they racism. invented, what's his name? Kevin Kastner. Right. <laughs> they, yeah, they invented. Kevin <laughs> I can't, whatever his name is. They, he would be they invented him anyway. The anti-apartheid yes. man. Um, yeah. He's knocking yes. down the signs so we can all go to space yes. together. Um. Which is good. Like, it was, it was basically, yeah, it was a great movie, absolutely. right? And I love that the, the women involved were still alive to yes. see the movie and that, you know, they have yes, had recognition. Yes, parts of NASA named after them now, buildings and so on. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. But um, it is, a, you know, there there aren't, and I think I was going to talk about this when we got to Asian, to yes. Asia um, a little bit, but there are certain genres of things that people can yes. make or get right. made or right. translated which is actually something i was thinking about when i was mm-hmm. in grad school i had a cl- workshop on translation because for some mad reason i thought i really really wanted to be a translator um and i had a bangladeshi classmate who happened to really love mm-hmm. science fiction and she was complaining that like there's no market for it like there's tons of great sci-fi but if she translated that's not what people thought it's of literature it's not what people wanted to read mm-hmm. right that's not what they wow. wanted oh i feel like we could create a market for that and you see this you yes. see this all over i yes. am that market yes <laughs> but you know this is you know several years ago it's only in i feel like the last couple of years that there has been a beginning of people to recognize that the chinese yeah. There are Chinese authors who write great sci-fi. There are Korean authors who write great sci-fi. Um, so hopefully the the line of demarcation will continue to sweep, um, yeah, <laughs> sweep towards South Asia, basically. Yeah. But um, well, I just want to say that, uh, funnily enough, in my, you know, I teach the two surveys for theater, so you know, up to sixteen hundred and after sixteen hundred, whatever. Both of them I teach is global, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we might have a separate thing on, you know, medieval theater at some point, which we might probably not have time for today, but next time, yeah. maybe, for Asia. Um, but in the modern half of the class, um, I sort of go by different sort of uh, 
performance genres. So if you think like realism and melodrama and expressionism and absurdism. Um, and for absurdism, we read Bus Stop by Gao, a Chinese playwright who lives in France and has done since the late 80s because his plays eventually got banned mm-hmm. and he left. And then he mentioned Tiananmen when it happened. And so he got banned. Yeah. Um, but I teach Bus Stop. Um, the Other Shore is another great play he wrote that I teach mostly to my grads. Um, but Bus Stop also to the undergrads. And that's our ex- um, our sort of absurdist play, right? Surrealist play that we do. Um, and mm-hmm. he is clearly writing in a Western genre. You know, he's following Beckett. There are elements of Godot and so on. Um, but of course, that's part of the point. And I have occasionally had students who have also had either, you know, close by to when they've had the class or sometimes at the same time have had a write a sort of class in modern history of China um, because, right, this is one of the things they can do as an elective somewhere in the school, right? Yeah. Um, and so I occasionally had students who have been really interested in sort of why he would choose this genre, what the play, because, you know, when we read it, it's very hard to see how it might be banned. So I always ask them. Um, and mm-hmm. some students who have a very, very good sense of sort of what's going on in the play and why he wrote it and all of these things. Um, but absolutely, right? But it is hard to... It, it exists in translation, but, you know, not... I mean, one or two translations, right? It's not yeah. widely... Tra- I mean, he won the Nobel Prize, which is probably the only reason it's been translated, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because, yes, otherwise, yeah. that isn't necessarily the thing that you would expect right which is very 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 Mm -hmm. unfortunate yeah um and you're right translation that's a that's probably an issue for a whole episode because there are a lot of issues yeah (laughs) yes so many things to say about Um, translation but uh going back to africa yes um yeah this is a huge 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 issue right and this is why again if we knew more about africa i feel like we would see these things and think they were ridiculous right the same way we've started to Mm -hmm. look at things like yes i mean it's not that ken castor's character was bad but like why did they need him they don't you don't have to have a white guy in this movie he played it very well right but he doesn't have to be in hidden figures like you don't need him (laughs) right Mm -hmm. so i feel like hmm? i had a karate sensei who was very adamant that The Last Samurai would have been a much, much better movie if Tom Cruise wasn't in it. And he's right. I feel like that is 100% true, and also I haven't seen that movie for that reason. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying. I watched Tom Cruise in Mission Impossibles. There's a guy whose job is to hit Tom Cruise in the head with a stick in the movie, Ah, so that part was very satisfying. But it is sort of your classic white guy joins a foreign culture and becomes its most awesome member type of story. Yes. Why? <laughs> but I, I think we have started to hit a point, at least, where we recognize those, right? Where we mm-hmm. do look at that and we're like, hmm, there's maybe a problem here. Right? Yes. <laughs> um, but, you know, the more we know, is that NBC? The more you know? Yeah. Yes. The more, the more we know, the more likely we are not to do those things. Right. <laughs> to not do those things anymore. We can learn. I feel like we this, can is, be taught. this is a goal. Yeah. Yes. Um, so we were talking about um, trade networks, right? Yes. Um, so I just, I figured we'd introduce our sort of next section, although we're like halfway through it already, um, with the Crusader Bible, which is the image on our website. Or, I mean, the image on our website is yes. from the Crusader Bible, um, which is now more frequently 
known as um, the Shabbos Bible because it's mostly at the Morgan Library. There are some folios at other places. Um, the Getty has a folio. Uh, the Bibliothèque Nationale has a folio. Um, but the manuscript has about 380 illuminated scenes. It was the work of at least six different artists. Um, and it's basically um, the graphic novel version of events from mostly the Old Testament, um, but not the complete Old Testament, right? So it concentrates especially sort of um, around kings, a particularly David. Yeah. So there are elements of Genesis, Exodus, but then like Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel. <laughs> um, and it's sort of about kingship, right? Um, and the people in it, as you will see if you look at the website, um, are dressed in, right, these sort of clothes of, right, so the people in it are drawn according to 13th century France, right? So it's all these events, but portrayed as though they're happening sort of in what would have been the modern day, right, um, in France. Yeah, because it was, it was, it was probably drawn created... in the 1240s, I want to say. Yes. Yeah, uh, probably for, for Louis the Ninth, but he would, so St. Louis, mm -hmm. right, <laughs> as we know him, um, who also was responsible for Saint-Chapelle, well, oh. um, yeah, which also has people in what was modern dress at the time. Um, but anyway, so the book was presumably created for him um, after his death, probably went to his brother, Charles of Anjou, who ruled Naples. Um, and so the book went with him to Italy, which is probably where the Latin was added. So this is where okay. we get Latin. Yeah. Because before this had really been a picture book, <laughs> right? A graphic novel, illustrated manuscript. But mostly just the illustrations. Yeah. Um, so the Latin pretty much gets put in, presumably in Italy. Um, the first recorded owner of the Bible doesn't show up till like the late 1500s. And this is a cardinal in wow. Krakow, Poland. Now, uh, we'll talk about borders at some point, either today or next time. Um, you know, when we call out countries now, this probably isn't what they were at the time. But... Um, yeah, but Bernard um, Mechiovsky, mm -hmm. uh, so Cardinal Mechiovsky was the, yeah, the bishop, eventually of Krakow, um, and then Cardinal, and then um, in 1604, we don't know how he got this, by the way, oh. <laughs> um, but presumably it had something to do with him being bishop and then Cardinal, um, you know, yeah, somebody along the way gave him this manuscript. Sure. Um, how did it end up there compared to... Naples, we have no idea. But anyway, in 1604, so this is hundreds of years later. I mean, this book has been around. Mm -hmm. um, in 1604, he gifts the Bible to Shah Abbas. Um, and this is presumably when the Persian inscriptions are added. Okay. Right, so it heads off to Persia, which of course today is Iran. And Persian inscriptions are added to go with the Latin. Right. Um, in 1722, um, the Afghans sort of are conquering the area. The Royal Library is sacked. Um, what happens to the manuscript for the next hundred years or so? We have no idea. Except that at some point, a Persian Jew apparently had it. Hmm. Um, and added Judeo-Persian inscriptions to the manuscript. Um, and even commented on and corrected the previous scripts. <laughs> so at this point... <laughs> 
Um, the text has accrued Latin, Persian, Arabic, Judeo-Persian, and Hebrew. Mm-hmm. And in 1833, it's auctioned off by Sotheby's, whose records say they bought it in Cairo. <laughs> but who really knows, after all? Mm-hmm. Um, Judeo-Persian, by the way, for those who haven't heard of it, is like Persian written in Hebrew letters. Yes. It's probably not quite, you know, there's probably a little bit more to it in terms of dialect. Well, it's sort of like Yiddish. Yeah. Yiddish is German in Hebrew letters, but also has its own, yeah. I mean, also or, kind of its own language. Uh <laughs> Ladino, which is Spanish, Spanish in Hebrew letters. Yes. And there's a whole, there's a whole bunch of languages called Judeo-Arabic that um, I didn't find yeah. out about until I had to catalog a book in one of Ooh. them. Yes, awesome. Which is a surprising book, but... Sweet. Um, yeah. Yeah. But absolutely, right. Um, there are all sorts of Jewish vernaculars. Um, I mean, technically anything that is specific to Jews that isn't Hebrew is a vernacular. <laughs> yes. Right. Um, so there are there are many, many Jewish vernaculars. Um, and of course, modern Hebrew was resurrected, essentially. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's its own thing. Anyway. Um, but yeah, so the Crusader Bible but also probably better known as, at this point, the Shabbos Bible, um, that really demonstrates (laughs) the extraordinary, um, not just the sort of extraordinary trip that this book took, right? Yes. Um, Somehow, right, from France, presumably to Italy, ultimately to Krakow, right, to Persia, um, and then, you know, maybe ultimately to Egypt. Who knows? Um, but also the idea that, right, it collects all of these languages, right? Um, so there's something really extraordinary about what this text illustrates um, about trade routes, right? And where people yeah. went and how they moved and how many people you find commenting on this text, right? <laughs> so the extent to which, first of all, of course, the Old Testament is important to all three of the Right, uh, religions that are related: yeah. Judaism, Christianity, Islam. So that they would all be willing to, or find it important to offer comments or translations or something. Yes, exactly. Yeah, um, but then th- we have this widespread right of languages, and it travels this sort of very interesting area, right? This sort of interesting route. Um, so, right, the ways in which this specific text really demonstrates the sort of cosmopolitan nature of the Middle Ages in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. Um, into the early modern period, you know. Um, so this is why, again, it's sort of important to recognize this because you look at it and you're just like, oh yeah, this is clearly a European text. It's got European knights, you know, acting out scenes from the Old Testament kind of, or Old Testament scenes drawn as though they're modern European knights, modern meaning at the time it was written, of course. Um, but really, there's so much more going on, right? Um, yeah, so sort of thinking about things like that, um, we maybe have time to just dip quickly into Ethiopia. Okay. Um, <laughs> and then perhaps Asia will resurface next time. Okay. That'll be fine, because a lot of the map stuff I had to talk about was um, was Asia. So. So that'll be a Perfect. great place to, to start. Awesome. So next time we'll talk about Asia and borders, which is good. And possibly also global medieval theater as far as Asia. Um, but uh, Ethiopia, one of the, 
and this is of course what is today Ethiopia, which you know in the Middle Ages covers slightly more area um, at various times and things. But uh, the air, this area, so sort of Ethiopia, Eritrea today, um, is becomes Christian very very early in the three hundreds. Right. Um, and for those who are following along, this is basically the same time that Europe becomes Christian. Hmm. Right. So Ethiopia becomes Christian, larger, right? Medieval Ethiopia, so the larger area, uh, becomes Christian about the same time that Europe becomes Christian. This is really, really important because, of course, we, this is one of the problems with colonization, tend to think of Christianity not only as a European religion, when, of course, it is created in the Middle East. Um, <laughs> born born and raised literally in the Middle East, yeah. of course, right? Um, but also, it is it is absolutely used in colonization. I mean, that is one of the issues in the Americas, of course, right? Is the sort of forced conversion. Um, so the extent to which Christianity became a weapon of colonization, um, and this is a continued question both in Africa and definitely among African Americans in the U.S., right? The extent to which Christianity um, is or isn't a religion um, that should be important, right? Mm -hmm. um, and for some people, it absolutely is, right? They absolutely identify Jesus as a man of color. Um, so the, what europe did to it and what sort of white people did christianity is seen as a sort of deviation yeah um, but for other people you can't take that out of it right and sort of christianity will always be tainted by that um and therefore maybe you turn to something like islam um or even back to for example yoruba um if you're from the area of nigeria right um so this though really problematizes that idea of christianity as a white religion which is of course unfortunately something that white supremacists also tend to think um, and of course it's not because again, right, Middle East, but also the very idea that Ethiopia is becoming Christian at the same time Europe is again, right, really, really problematizes that idea. Um, and famously, right, uh, Judaism reaches Ethiopia even before Christianity. And this is, um, a sort of whole other subject, right? But there yes. were Jews in Ethiopia, um, many of whom now live in Israel, and by sort of the right of return. Who actually still face a fair amount of discrimination, I think. A huge amount of discrimination. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, and, which is, a you know, one of those giant problems. Um, and essentially, there is a, an extent to which they may not have been allowed the right of return, except for the fact that at the time, American Jews... Um, and Jews from other parts of the world really put the pressure on Israel to accept mm -hmm. them and not be racist, not be racist about it. Yeah. Um, because, you know, there were certain Orthodox, ultra, ultra Orthodox factions who said things like, well, the can we don't know that the conversions of these people were proper. And so therefore maybe, mm. you know, blah, whatever BS, you know? Yeah. But anyway, um, but yeah, so this sort of sense of, right. Judaism reaches Ethiopia very early, right. In the hundreds, right. Of the common era. Yeah. Um, which is to say, you know, once Jews sort of spread off to the diaspora because of Rome and so on, um, you know, some of them end up in Ethiopia. And Christianity follows pretty quickly thereafter. Um, and so Ethiopia becomes Christian and has a phenomenally extraordinary history in the Middle Ages of Christianity, as Europe does, right? Illuminated manuscripts and sort of metalworking and the, you know, of crosses and just the gorgeous art and artifacts. Um, and in addition, of course, maybe most famously, 
um, the Cabernet which is probably from sort of the 1300s, um, and is written in the liturgical language, um, guess, which is a Semitic language, and it details um, the story of the son of King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, Makeda, uh, the son is Metallic, um, and the the story that when he sort of returns to visit Solomon with a ring that demonstrates who he is and Solomon welcomes him um, and gives him um, the covering from the Ark. And so then he leaves to go back home and Solomon has sent these men with him. And unbeknownst to Solomon, certainly, and also apparently to Menelik, um, the men who are sent back with him as sort of an entourage take the Ark. <laughs> the Ark. So the famous Ark of the Covenant that we see in like Indiana Jones and the Last yeah. Crusade. Um, and um, not Last Crusade. The first one. The first Sorry. one. Last Crusade is, of course, the the goblet. Yes. Yes. <laughs> the Grail. The Holy Grail, which could be its yes. own episode. Yeah. Uh, but yes, Raiders. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, yes. So the, you know, that Ark, which they find in the desert, is one. I mean, there's a very, 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 very strong tradition, which is, of course, where anything comes from, right? Um, that the Ark is actually in Ethiopia um, because oh. it was brought back, right? This The entourage sort of took it. And by the time Menelik sort of realized it was there, um, he sort of realized he was destined to have it. And supposedly Solomon finds out it's gone and he thinks of chasing after them. But then before he can even start sort of magically, um, the Ark and Menelik and the men are all back at home in Ethiopia. Um, and Solomon sort of realizes he can't, chase them down right that's kind of destined mm-hmm. to <laughs> to to go and there is a i mean to this day right there's a temple there that is where it is housed um and so it's interesting right because of course medieval europe is so famous for its shrines and its saints and its relics right and the relics of the true cross and all of these things right um and we pay much less attention and i think are much more I don't know. We sort of look more askance upon this tradition in Ethiopia that they would yeah. have the Ark. But honestly, there's no reason they wouldn't. <laughs> um, sure. They have been Christian as long, right? Um, they've had the tradition as long. Uh, there is a lot of argument that the Queen of Sheba is supposed to be from Ethiopia, right? Um, so this sort of sense right of the ways in which again um a lot of the history that we sort of don't know or ignore or don't think about um frequently it really problematizes things we might sort of take for granted which is for example the idea that yes christianity may not have started as sort of a religion um based on whiteness but that it became one mm-hmm. right because we assume that it then went to europe and that's where it stayed but it did not just go to Europe. <laughs> it also really did go to Africa. Um, and Ethiopia has as much acclaim on the traditions. Um, and so that idea, again, right? Um, what does it mean to think of that, right? Of Christianity in Ethiopia. Also, of course, of Byzantine Christianity, right? As mm-hmm. all of these being sort of equally important competing traditions, right? Um and it starts to hopefully, right, 
the sort of side of Christianity that exists as um, underpinning whiteness becomes just one aspect of it. In theory. Yes. Yeah. All right. So, um, that is maybe what we have time for today. <laughs> I think we've like hit probably. an hour. So probably, yeah, we're right at yeah. an hour. Probably a good idea to, to call it there. But yeah, but I wanted to bring that up because it's a, it is a really important thing. And if you go view medieval art in a museum, you'll see all the European stuff. And then you go off to the African section, right? And you'll get things from Africa, like from the ancient to the modern, Right mm-hmm. in the African section, I'm specifically think of the Met in New York, of course here. Yeah. But um, because not all museums do this, and of course museums have been trying to rearrange their collections. But really, as far as I'm concerned, you should see medieval Europe and sort of medieval Ethiopia really next to each other. I mean, mm-hmm. um, and you go to the section and you see all right, you see all this Christian imagery, and it's not because of European colonization, right? It is because Christianity got there from the Middle East also. Yeah. Right? Um, So there is something very, very important about that. Those are my comments about that. Awesome. Yay. It's interesting that you mentioned this um, feeling of, like, the black Christianity of Ethiopia feeling kind of devalued. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is, recently, um, an African-American guy that I knew was talking about how... Jews were originally black or, Mm -hmm. you know, certainly Middle Eastern. Right. Um, And that people who look like me are really converts. Yeah. That we came, yeah, we came later, which is funny, A, because, you know, to to a large extent, Ashkenazic Jews have become basically the face of what Jews look like. Although, yeah, yeah, in the U.S. for sure. Although I've I've met or I've heard um, people who look or you know, are more Sephardic Mm -hmm. saying that they don't feel like they pass as white the way that the way that Ashkenazic Jews generally do. That's absolutely true. Yeah. And Um, a lot of them, of course, have received been on the receiving end of um, Islamophobia. Yeah. Right. Because people look at them and sort of write the Middle Eastern. Yeah. Um, Yeah. There's a great blogger I like, Pap Hasid, uh, who is Sephardic, and he has commented on that a lot. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's weird because I don't know. I didn't realize I was going to feel so quite so defensive about hearing somebody say that and feeling yeah. like, dude, it is not my fault that my ancestors were from the north. Like, right. I wish <laughs> that my skin did not look like this. It is a pain <laughs> in the summertime. But right. this is what I got, you know, mm-hmm. uh, basically clear, right. basically clear in terms of skin color. Right. So but it did it did make me rethink like my own assumptions about what people look like what jews look like what you know where do religions go and how did how did they get there how did Mm -hmm. my ancestors actually become jewish it's definitely sort of a time immemorial thing but you know but if you think about it to the same way ethiopia right um people the the diaspora right when you head off to the diaspora you intermarry with people around you if you're allowed to Mm -hmm. and then of course you blend into the local population eventually i mean that's how that happens Right, Jews today have a high rate of have a very high rate of intermarriage. That's yes. certainly true. Um, but you can, you know, I mean, but that's the thing, right? At some point, they obviously didn't. At some point, they blended mm-hmm. in, right? Um, and it 
it is actually an issue in a few ways because yes, they blended in, but also, but also then didn't, right? Once there's a large enough population, you can stop intermarrying and marry within the group. Um, but of course, that's how you get things like Tay-Sex. <laughs> Um, yes. That being said, you also have, right, um, if you're a Jewish man, they did this recently. They traced, right, all Jewish men do have, are basically, um, if you're a Kohen, which means a certain class, right, the priestly class, mm-hmm. like your grandfather, um, that you can be traced back to a specific lineage. And they have kind of figured out, like, they've kind of traced that lineage. Like, they know sort of when that guy <laughs> and whichever, you know, few women were alive back in the Middle East. Like, they've sort of traced that cluster. Wow. Um, and it's known as something like the Cohen gene. You know, oh, because... Yeah. I believe um, that. So, so that's also really interesting. Because, of course, Judaism goes by the mother. Because, of course, you mm-hmm. always know who the mother is, is the point, yeah. right? However, as far as DNA is concerned, it's easier to trace men in that way, right? Mm-hmm. The Y, you know, you can trace it all the way back. Um, but there's something really interesting about that um, that says a lot about the ways in which, despite the diaspora, where Jews have clearly intermarried with local populations all over the world. I mean, all over the world, right? There are mm-hmm. Jews everywhere. There are Jews in China. There are Jews in Africa. Yeah. There are Jews, right, everywhere. Um, at the same time, there is something very interesting about um, the idea that there is also this continuous tradition, right? Yeah. Uh, which is kind of what what Judaism holds on to, right? It is, of course, also why, even though Judaism is a religion, it is also very ambiguously seen as a race, right? Theoretically, mm-hmm. to see Judaism as a race, you have to be a white supremacist. Yeah. But you know, there are enough DNA specifics that we can be seen as a group, right? Race itself mm-hmm. is really a human construction to begin with, right? Yeah. There is not a DNA for race. I mean, you know, <laughs> like no. for skin color, but not for race. I mean, race is not a thing. Race is a human yeah. construction. But in as much as you can tell based on certain DNA types where in the world people came from, right? Because inheritance clusters... Judaism does sort of have that. Yeah. There's actually a bunch of um, diseases you can be tested for if you're an Ashkenazic Jew who's having kids with another Ashkenazic Jew. Yes. Turns out Tay-Sachs is only the most well-known of them, but there's a lot of things that uh, we're at an increased risk of. Yes. Yes. This is fun. Such a thing. Or not fun, but it's it's a thing that you have to know about. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. But yeah, I think that um, sometimes, you know, sometimes Jews sort of do also cling on to the idea of being a race or being a something that they can't, because, you know, even when people are not, they don't necessarily feel themselves to be observant, but they feel a strong tie to the traditions, mm-hmm. you know, like. I didn't go to Yom Kippur services this year, but I still want my mom to come up and make hamantashen with my son, you know? Right. Um, they're like, yeah. That's a very important ritual. Mm-hmm. And because I'm me, like, a lot of my important rituals are food-related. But there's other important rituals, too. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you of know. course. Um, 
culture is culture is a lot of things but yeah no no absolutely yeah yeah um and i mean of course it's also a culture possibly an ethnicity i mean it's all of these things right um and it's it's distinct enough that if you're ashkenazi versus sephardic um but even you know there are more traditions than that these are the ones we know the best yeah um yeah but there are some really sort of interesting questions, of course, about the ways in which this is sort of the interesting thing. Actually, we might talk about this at some point. I think I've mentioned it before, but um, there are some scholars about who work on sort of race in the Middle Ages. Um, you'll And I want to say also, by the way, that we have specifically avoided so far talking about the way Europe views people who might be, for example, African or Asian or so on, right? So we didn't, you know, Marco Polo's journeys or things like that. We've mentioned yeah. him, but we mentioned some others as well, right? Like Ibn Battuta and so on. Um, and um, that's sort of the point, right? That decolonizing specifically means um, talking about <laughs> other people, right? Yeah. Um, we will so eventually like, talk about race in medieval Europe. But yes. Yes. Not right now. Right. Um, and, you know, if you're interested, like Zheng Ha's Chinese, who went out a huge you know, journey, just like Marco Polo as well, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, and also, of course, as I said, like even Batuta. So there are all these other people that you could look at. Um, but, yeah, we've sort of avoided looking at Europe's perspective because that's the point of decolonization is to look at other people. Um, however, um, there is, there are scholars who work on race in medieval Europe um, who have sort of... Um, pinpointed in some ways as opposed to orientalism which really pinpoints which does pinpoint sort of the way the greeks looked at the persians and this as being a sort of potentially racial difference or creating what we now think of as a racial difference right they start to create mm -hmm. this sense of race um that really right in the intervening years then you have the roman empire which goes all over the world and how do you become a roman citizen right so things are sort of nebulous and how race and difference and citizenship and who you are or aren't gets defined and redefined in a lot of ways. And as you hit the Middle Ages, eventually there comes to be a sort of definition of race that is arguably, that does arguably in some ways start with defining Jews as other. Hmm. And then sort of proceeds from there. All right. And that one of the reasons might be because, because Jews sort of do seem to blend in at this point, right? In Europe, they have largely intermarried. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not based on skin color necessarily, but how do you recognize someone who is other? We weren't and even wearing the hats at that exactly. point. Exactly. You were not wearing the hats. <laughs> that blows yes. my mind. There are no hats. No hats. No pointy hats. Yes. That nonetheless somehow will yeah. ultimately become the stereotype. Yeah. No pointy um, hats. No yarmulkes. No strimmels. No. No, no hats at all. Yeah. Yeah. Because no one was really wearing hats. Right. Oh. And so Jews were, you know, Jews just blended in. Um, but there, but that was sort of the problem, mm -hmm. um, and so how do you start to define this? Yeah, yeah. Well, I will take it for one. I have never wanted to belong to any club that would have me as a member. Yes, so <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if we're if we're gonna be the other, I will take it. Yep. But okay. Also, I'm gonna stop you there. Yes, because we have been going on. Yes. We uh, have. So next time we will talk about Asia. Um, which means I get to talk about uh, Angkor Wat, which I'm very excited about. And we're going to talk about borders and yes. maps and 
uh, nation states, which, you know, is sort of a crazy thing that like as modern people, we tend to take for granted. Right. And one of my favorite things, um, we've talked a little bit about it in when we talked about America's is like just looking at maps differently. Yes. Super cool. So that's yes. all stuff you have to look forward to next time. Um, and let's see, announcements. We don't really have any <laughs> other than thank everybody for their continued support. Uh, rate us on iTunes, follow us on Facebook, tweet us on Twitter, or, yes. and, you know, feel free to send us various questions through our website or to our email at askamedievalist. Uh, I think it's questions at askmedievalist.com. Think it's, to say that better, don't send us an email. I don't remember the email address. Use our form <laughs> on our website. Uh, yes, or we will look up go through Facebook. Facebook people can ask questions too. Somebody did today, so there you go. <gasps> what? Ooh. Yeah, it was your mom. But <laughs> oh yay! <laughs> awesome. And everybody else, stay safe, wear your masks, wash your hands, and viva la revolution. Keep it medieval. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons attributional non-commercial license version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com. 